to Revelation chapter 21. It's not 22 like it says behind you there. We're still in chapter 21. Lord willing, we'll finish it up this morning. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you also, Matt and the music team, for your leadership today. Uh, leading us before Christ's throne. Adjusting my uh, gadgetry up here. Apologize for that. Let's uh, read our passage this morning then. Revelation 21, verses 9 through 27. Uh, I'm going to read the entire passage to you. Shouldn't take very long uh, after all. Hear the word of the Lord. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod. Twelve thousand stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple was the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
They will bring it, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's inerrant and authoritative word. May he bless this to us this morning. Let's just pause and ask for his help as we begin we cry, O oh Lord, for the insight and wisdom given to us by your good spirit. Send him now from above to quicken us in your grace, to understand what's before us in this passage. Let us see the glory of Christ and the glory of his radiant bride described in these verses. Help us, Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Dr. Steve Lawson tells the story of a young British aristocrat named William Montague. Uh, Montague was stricken with blindness at the age of 10, but extremely intelligent, went on to university, and uh, even despite his handicap, did quite well. In graduate school, uh, he met the beautiful daughter of a British admiral. Uh, the courtship soon flamed into romance, though he had never seen this woman, of course, because of his blindness. William fell in love with the beauty of her soul, and the two became engaged. Shortly before the wedding, uh, at, his, uh, at the bride's father's insistence, William agreed to have eye surgery that might or might not correct his vision. The doctors performed their operation on William and bandaged his eyes. Uh, he was then confined to bed with his eyes wrapped until the wedding. William requested, this is quite brave of him, uh, that the bandages be removed from his eyes during the ceremony, just when the bride made her way down the center aisle. I mean, what are you going to do? As the organ signaled for the bride to enter, every heart waited to see what would happen. As she approached, William's father began to unwrap the gauze over his son's eyes. And when the last bandage was removed, light flooded into William's eyes. Slowly, William focused on the radiant face of his precious bride who stood before him. Overcome with emotion, William whispered, You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Quite dramatic. Quite, uh, quite dramatic. Something similar to that is what we've just read about in Revelation chapter 22, verses 9 through 27. Uh, what we see in this part of chapter 21 is that presentation that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 5 that oh, perhaps you and I have read two dozen times or so. It's these words that Paul says in Ephesians 5 uh, describing this presentation like this. He says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and 
and without blemish. And this is what we see in Revelation 21, 9 through 27. Perhaps we'll hear Christ use the words of William Montague to his bride. You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Or, or perhaps Christ will use the words from the Song of Solomon. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. This presentation of the bride begins in verse 9. It says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, last, uh, the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Uh, and then using symbolic language, John goes on to describe the bride of Christ using the language someone might use to describe a city or a temple. Look at verse 10, And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Many of us have assumed that John is describing the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. But verse 9 tells us, that what John is laying out before us is the bride of Christ, the church, through this symbolic language. And, and as John witnesses this presentation of, of Christ's bride, the church, before her groom, he describes her with six characteristics. I'm indebted to Dr. Joel Beakey this morning for these main headings I'm using. There are six characteristics or traits or qualities of Christ's bride, the church, that John presents to us through the image of this city, this temple. The first characteristic that John describes to us is the church's origin. First John reveals the origin of Christ's beautiful bride. And I want to point out three things about the church's origin in these first few verses. The first thing we encounter is a contrast. I, I want to show you the stark contrast between the bride of Christ and between another woman that we've seen throughout our study. The other woman I'm speaking of is the great prostitute that we've seen in previous chapters, also referred, as, uh, referred to as Babylon the Great and, and the great city. If you'd flip back about three pages uh, in your Bible or use your thumb to flip up a little bit or down a little bit to get to chapter 17 on your phone, and I want to show you this contrast uh, beginning in chapter 17, verse 1, listen to the language as John describes this woman. We'll call her the other woman. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. 
And now back to chapter 21, back to those three pages, uh, back to where we began in verse, uh, in, in verse 9, and, and listen to the contrast, uh, the similarity in, in the language, but the contrast in the woman. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the last seven plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Some of the wording is quite strikingly similar to the wording of chapter 17. This is no accident. Uh, the Holy Spirit breathing out these words uh, through John intends to show you and me the stark and the dramatic contrast between that woman, the other woman, the great prostitute who represents the world system opposed to Christ, that woman, and this woman, the beautifully radiant bride of Christ. The, the similarity in the wording is meant to set the bride of Christ apart, to, to point out how, how dramatically different she is, to draw attention to her radiant beauty and her purity. One Bible scholar confirms this and says, the immoral and unfaithful conduct of Babylon is contrasted here with the faithfulness of the bride. So the first thing we, we see in the church's origin is a, is a contrast with the great prostitute of chapter 17. Christ's bride is significantly different. The second thing I want you to notice about the church's origin, and this one's been clawing at the back of your mind, uh, since I began. Uh, the second thing we see is an identity. What exactly does our passage describe? A woman or a city? John mentioned New Jerusalem in passing. We saw this last week. Glance up to verse 2 in your Bible where it says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And, and there, there, it sounds like a city. But our verse today, in verse 9 again, uh, it says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Here in John's vision, the angel specifically identifies New Jerusalem as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Some of you are holding the ESV study Bible in your lap, and it has a note saying this. Some take this as a literal description of this new city. Others understand it as a complex symbol for the life in heaven of the Lamb's redeemed people. Well, which is it? Well, I think we should interpret John's language here the way we've been doing it throughout our study. I believe John is using symbolic language. Christ's bride, the church, the people of God are like, like a heavenly city, like a heavenly temple, like a heavenly tabernacle where God dwells. This is how John refers 
to the city up in verse 3 where he says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place or the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. I think John's language is symbolic. Christ's bride, the church, the people of God are, are, are like a heavenly city, like a heavenly temple, like a heavenly tabernacle where God dwells. Well, it's nothing new, actually. This is how he refers to the church throughout the New Testament. Consider these examples. Do you not know that you are God's temple? Now, a lot of us take that us as individuals are God's temple. That's true. That's drawn out in this passage three chapters later. This is more individual. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, uh, whom you have from God? You are not your own. This is about, the, the, the context of this verse is about uh, sex outside of marriage. And, and Paul says, you can't do that. You're not your own. And your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But this passage, uh, the first one, do you not know that you, you, is plural? And so Paul is saying, do y'all not know that you all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? It's collective. Uh, not only does the spirit reside in you personally, and that's why you shouldn't join yourself to a prostitute, chapter 6 tells us, but this chapter uh, is, is talking about building up the church. We'll see the context in, in, in just a, a little while. Uh, that you all, when you collectively come together, are the place where God dwells. Well, this isn't the only place. Let's see, we've seen that one. But we could go on into this important passage in Ephesians chapter 2, where we see the church referred to in the same way as a as a, a building. So Paul writes here, so then you are no longer, he's writing to Gentiles, which is most of us, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so here again we see the idea of the church uh, it's, it's a temple. It's a building. And, and also from First Peter, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but, uh, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built, into, built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What we're reading in our passage in Revelation uh, 21 is the completion of this spiritual house. 
with the rapture of the saints, the final brick goes into the temple and there is Christ's bride presented in terms of a temple or, or a structure. See, it's not a building or a city that God dwells in. God dwells among his people just as he promised throughout Scripture, and just as he says most recently in verse 3, he will dwell with them, or he will tabernacle among them. This one scholar comments, the bride represents not a literal place or city, but the redeemed community faithful to God. The people themselves will be both the city and the temple in which God's presence resides. And it's described this way throughout the New Testament as a place, the church, the people, a place where God dwells. So, so then what are we reading about, a woman or a city? I believe we can identify this as a woman, the bride of Christ, the faithful people of God, the place where God dwells, described through the symbol of a city temple. Again, William Hendrickson offers this, the angel had promised to show him the bride, so the city is the bride. The two are identical. Both indicate the church of God. So we see an identity. Uh, we see that this woman is described to us as a, as a temple, as the whole New Testament describes the church. We're talking about the bride of Christ, the people of God, the place where God dwells. Well, thirdly here, I want to see, want you to see the origin where the church originates. Again, verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Verse 2 says the same thing. Uh, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The church originates from above Spiritual life originates from God. In John 3, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in the garden, Jesus told Nicodemus this. No, he didn't. Well, he told him this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or it could say born anew, or it could say, born from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again, Nicodemus. You must be born anew. You must be born from above. You must receive the life that comes from God to see the kingdom of God. That's John 3.3. 3. Two verses uh, from John 1, underscore this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The church always originates with God. Spiritual life always comes from above, there is nothing in you and I that can well up or stir up spiritual life 
on our own apart from God's doing. It is, uh, let me throw out a $12 word, what many people refer to as monergism. Uh, so often at work we hear, well, I don't hear it at work, but maybe you do, synergism. Or you've heard the word synergy, and it means working together, just like on Sesame Street. Let's work together. Synergy, synergism, it means working with. There, there is no synergism when God saves us. It's monergism. One working, solely working. You must be born from above. It's not of blood. It's not the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. That's a, that's a significant phrase. You didn't become a Christian because you wanted to. That's a tough pill to swallow. I made up my mind and I trusted Christ. Well, maybe to you. But working behind that is the last three words. You were born of God. New life from above. The, and so we see, the, uh, we see the church, the origin of the church, uh, thirdly here, uh, the church is born from above. Can, can I ask you if you have been born from above? Is being a Christian to you, was it just a matter of you mumbling the same words that somebody up front told you to say one time? And is that what you think it is to be a Christian? And then off to live life just like you did before that night. You know, when the Bible talks about people coming to know Christ and people becoming Christians, the Bible uses phrases like we've seen, born from above, new birth, new life, regeneration is a term we see in the word. It means to be recreated. Reborn. Have you been reborn? Are you the same old slug you've always been? Is there a new heart and new life in you? Are you here because mom and dad told you to come? See, this... New life must be in you to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. You must be born from above. This is where the church comes from. It comes down from above because spiritual life does not come through clever methods uh, or any kind of trick or Motivation, guilt feelings, uh, it's from above. The Spirit of God 
works in your heart to give you a new heart and give you new desires and new inclinations. In the life of New Covenant Bible Church, we need the Lord to birth people from above. And as you and I share God's word through the Spirit's enabling, we need God to bring life from above into the hearts of men and women and young men and young women and and as well as our younger children. May we be faithful to share the gospel and the power of the Spirit so that people can be born not of us, but be born from above. So John, to begin with, describes uh, to us the origin of the church. And we've seen the contrast with the other woman, uh, the identity. It's talking about the, the bride of Christ and, and the symbol of a city or temple. And its origin is from above. I want to press on now and show you the church's beauty as Christ presents the bride to himself. We see the stunning beauty, the glorious splendor of Christ's bride. And I want to point out first her clothing. What would a what would the presentation of, of a bride be without stopping to notice what she's wearing, right? Uh, the uh, we spend enormous amounts, I speak from personal experience, on wedding dresses. And by gum, we're going to stop and describe it. <laughs> no need to get personal, I guess. Let's, let's press on. Look with me at her clothing. We see it described in verse 10. Again, 10 we've looked at a couple times carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, the bride being described like a temple coming down. And look at verse 11, this first phrase, having the glory of God. That word having, that's a very normal way to translate the word. It's a very common verb, but when it refers to clothing, it can be translated uh, to have on the glory of God, or to wear the glory of God, or or to be arrayed in the glory of God. The bride of the Lamb, as she comes down, she is wearing the very glory of Christ about her. Uh, look at verse 11 as, as it goes on. Uh, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I did really poorly in, in uh, earth science, and I'm no gemologist or whatever they call them, but I understand that this jasper is not like our modern-day gem, jasper, because modern, this modern-day gem is not clear. It's opaque uh, and has, other, has different colors, but what this seems to describe as something describe as something crystal clear and so scholars uh, conclude that the stone John describes is more along the lines of a diamond with its clarity and the MacArthur study Bible agrees here it says rather than the modern opaque jasper 
The term actually refers to a completely clear diamond, a perfect gem with the brilliant light of God's glory shining out of it and streaming over the new heaven and the new earth. This, this is the bride's clothing. She is radiant. She is adorned with the glory of God. And it is, it is brilliant. The second thing, having described her dress, we must now go on to describe her accessories, her jewelry, her adornments, her ornamentation. And we find this down in verse uh, 18. Again, it says, The wall was built of jasper while the city uh, was pure gold like clear glass. Again, John mentions this diamond-like gem uh, together with pure, transparent gold. But it's verse 19 that I want you to see. The foundations of the wall, again, the, the, we're talking about the bride of Christ, were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the 11th jacinth, the 12th amethyst. Uh, these are, some of these um, gems overlap in color. Some of them have very similar colors. It's not that each specific gem means something, uh, but what they together, these 12 gemstones describe is, is the city foundation that is encrusted with jewels and gems. This is what we read about in our scripture reading today. I'm sure you don't remember, but Isaiah 54 said this, So afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, uh, your gates of carbuncles, and your wall of precious stones. And, and, and Bible scholars suggest that these gemstones represent the righteous acts of God's people performed in this age. I think this is probably correct. This is Consider what Paul says now and think about how we're describing this bride and, and the foundation and the gemstones, the, these foundations encrusted with these beautiful jewels. And listen to how Paul describes this. Again, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation we're talking about a foundation here in, in these verses, verse 19 and 20. And someone else is building upon it, Paul goes on to say. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, Precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. What we're reading is these 
gold and silver and precious stones that have been built on the foundation by God's people. And we see this bride adorned in her jewelry. And so you take 1 Corinthians 3 and Paul talks about building on the foundation of, of Christ with gold and silver and precious stones and, and how we minister amongst each other in the church and how we serve each other through the power of the Spirit and teach each other God's Word and encouraging each other. We're building on the foundation with precious stones. Those precious stones show up here. And that means what you do to serve and minister in the church lasts forever. These stones that Paul talks about building on the foundation, we see the bride presented to Christ. As he describes her as a city, she's, she's bespeckled with gems. This makes me think of uh, that good old k product, the Bedazzler. <laughs> you remember the Bedazzler? It's where you could order it on phone, well, on the telephone, I suppose, however you could get it. And uh, it's where you put, uh, came with a way to press rhinestones and fake gems into your blue jeans or whatever else you wanted to and... Every once in a while, Christy and I will be walking around and we see someone pass by and our comment is, looks like they got a little carried away with the bedazzler. <laughs> She's gorgeous. She's beautiful. These jewels that, that encrust her foundations the works of God's people, they're laid on the foundation of Christ. They, they last forever. And here they are listed. Onyx and Jasper. The, the adornment of the bride continues down in verse 21. If you hop there, it says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. How do we understand the, the pearly gates as we refer to them uh, often? These gates made of these gigantic pearls. Well, one, one man comments, Simon Kistemacher says, John is speaking figuratively and conveys a picture of perfection. Gates of pearl are a symbol of unimaginable beauty and unaccessible riches. Unaccessible means you cannot count it all. The bride of Christ presented to the Lamb is stunning. Unaccessible is a word that some people use with reference to the Dead Sea uh, over near Israel, the, the, the material wealth of the Dead Sea 
is so enormous as to be almost unbelievable according uh, to this report, which is, again, this is not a recent report. Uh, all, the, all that Israel manufactures, it's fruit and vegetables and anything Israel exports are, are nothing when compared with the mineral wealth of the Dead Sea. Uh, Jerusalem was captured uh, in World War I by General Allenby, and soon after, a British geologist began to investigate the riches, the mineral riches of the Dead Sea. Uh, its tremendous reserve is uh, estimated at 22,000 million tons of magnesium chloride, 12,000 million tons of common salt, 6,000 million tons of calcium chloride, 2,000 million tons of potassium chloride, and 1,000 million tons of magnesium bromide. The saleable value of these chemicals and minerals would come out to be the staggering figure of $1,270,000,000,000 equal to the combined wealth when this was written of the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany and Italy. That's unaccessible wealth. In today's dollars, as the saying goes, who knows what it's worth? This is the bride of Christ, her stunning, her radiant beauty, clothed with the glory of God, encrusted with the works of the saints as she is presented uh, to the Lamb. We see her clothing, we see her jewelry in this description of the bride's beauty. The third characteristic of the bride that John describes is her invulnerability. Uh, her eternal fellowship with God is absolutely unassailable and impervious to interruption. Look at the beginning of verse 12. It had great high walls with 12 gates and had the gates 12 angels. Uh, the city has magnificent defenses described here through its massive walls. But of course the city or the bride needs no defense at this point because there are no enemies left. And further, uh, verse 25 tells us that the gates of the city wall will never be shut. Nevertheless, never John describes the bride of Christ as absolutely secure and completely invulnerable uh, through this description of her walls. And, and William Hendrickson adds, uh, this pictures the security of God's people in the new universe. He continues, the church remains secure in its possession of communion with God and adds that John 10.28 describes what we're seeing. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So what we see is the church is completely invulnerable. This is repeated at, at the end of our passage in verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing can intrude into the bride's communion with her Lord. We see thirdly the church invulnerable, uh, unassailable, impervious to interruption, uh, uh, Interruption of fellowship with her 
uh, Master and Lord. John goes on and he names a fourth characteristic, and that is the church's universality. Uh, it is open and accessible to people from every tribe, tongue, and nations. Let me point out two things here. We see, first of all, how the city has been open to all people. Uh, all have had access to the heavenly city, uh, to the church of Christ. Look at verse 12 in your copy of the word. It had a high, great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. This is the, uh, the dwelling place of true Israel, the redeemed of all ages, and these Three gates on each side of the city revealed that there has been abundant opportunity to enter the city. From the heavenly viewpoint from which John is writing, there have been ample opportunities for people to enter into this glorious fellowship uh, with God through, through personal faith in Christ offered freely through the gospel. There has been open access to people of all uh, language, tongue, and tribe through the, through the gospel of Christ. And because of that, what we see next is the presence of all. I don't mean universally everyone who's ever existed. I mean all those who have accepted and trusted in Christ as their Savior and Lord. We see uh, people from every tribe and tongue and language, and this is described in verse uh, 24, uh, if you glance down there, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. We see a multitude of people from all places. This is just like what we read back in chapter 7. And hear what he says back in 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This will be finally the complete fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Uh, first made in Genesis 12, I will bless all the nations of the earth through you. So, we see open access to all, ample opportunity to enter the city through the gospel. And because of that, we see the presence of all kinds of people in the city. The church, the bride, is made up of people from every language and tongue and tribe. John goes on, and fifthly, he describes the church's foundation in verse 14 the church is built on the apostles testimony of christ look at verse 14 
in your copy of God's Word. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, Paul describes his role in laying this very foundation. Uh, again, I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 3. We've looked at this several times, and you'll, you'll recognize this. Paul said, according to the grace of God given me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's Paul's role in laying the foundation. Paul goes on to tell the church at Ephesus. He describes the foundation to them. He says to them, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There can be no other foundation than Jesus Christ. Peter says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. May you and I take care to lay no other foundation than this one. The same foundation laid by the apostles, that there is salvation in no one beside Christ and the means by which we are saved is repentance and personal faith in his atoning death on the cross. This is the fifth characteristic, the description of the church's foundation. It is the testimony of the apostles to Jesus Christ. Well, one more. And I don't know if this is the best for last. I didn't do it intentionally. But the last characteristic of the bride that we see here is uh, the church's glory. The church enjoys the constant presence of God's radiant glory. I'd like to point out two things to you about the church's glory here. I want you to know the see the measurements of the heavenly city. This begins in verse 15. Uh, verse 15 says, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Some believe that these numbers should be taken literally, that this is not a spiritual symbol of Christ's bride, the church, but that John is describing an actual city here. Why, why would he measure it? If this is the case... If this is a correct understanding, these measurements would make the city, oh, roughly 
about half the size of the United States and just as high as it is wide and long. It would truly be, taken literally, a massive city. But you know what I think. I think that we should understand these numbers as we've understood all the other numbers in Revelation as symbolic, as representative of something. Well, what could these numbers represent? You'll notice that the city is described as a perfect cube. Verse 16, its length and width and height are equal. It's a perfect cube. Now, what's important about a perfect cube? Because the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies of Solomon's temple, is also a perfect cube. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 6. No, where's 1 Kings chapter 6? Here's what 1 Kings 6 says. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it, Solomon that is, with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. The holy of holies that Solomon is describing is that area circled in red on the slide behind me. That's awfully small. I'll, I'll make it bigger in just a minute. But there you can see the, the altar where they uh, offered uh, sacrifice uh, out here in front. The bronze laver here behind me. Uh, the, the holy place, uh, the most holy place. Of course, there would have been a veil separating this room from this room. The priest, the high priest is standing at the altar of incense. There's the bread of the presence right there. And as we get a little closer, we can see that inside uh, the Holy of Holies contains the two cherubim uh, and the uh, Ark of the Covenant, which is still rather small. But if you have an ESV study Bible, you can look at this picture in your uh, study Bible. The most sacred place in the temple was the Holy of Holies because this was where God's presence resided. It was uh, in residence in a glory cloud that rested between and above the wings of the cherubim, uh, above the Ark of the Covenant. This is rather large. There were two angels uh, facing each other on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And God's presence resided uh, between the cherubim, only the high priest could enter the most holy place. And then only once a year to atone for Israel's sin. And so that the new Jerusalem is a perfect cube, like the holy of holies, indicates to us that the entire city is the new holy of holies. Down in verse 22, John says, I, I saw no temple in the city. And the reason is because it's all temple. The entire city is the sacred place where God meets with his people, just as we read back in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. No more holy of holies. The entire city is where God dwells or with the bride. Among his people. God tabernacles among them. And so one scholar says this, no sanctuary is needed for the fellowship of believers with their God is direct and immediate. God tabernacles with his people. They are constantly in his immediate and loving and abiding presence. Now that is saying something. The entire place is the holy of holies. Christ with his bride. I want you to see not only um, the measurement of the city. Well, let me point it towards the back and see if that works. Don't try this at home. Uh, we see the light of the city, Christ's bride. Uh, because all is his tabernacle. Because all is his dwelling. There's no need of light. And if you would glance down to verse 22 where we see this. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Back in chapter 4, we read this description of the one seated on the throne. And in that chapter, John wrote, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. That's why the city needs no sun. That's why the city needs no moon. The glory of the one seated on the throne illumines the entire place. Isaiah described it too. Back in Isaiah 60, listen to what he said. The same idea. The sun will be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. Excuse me. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. No more daylight savings time. No more normal time or whatever they call this weird thing. The sun will be always because it will be the glory of God that illuminates the entire city. No sun, no moon, no lamp. Christ the Lamb is its light. John describes, lastly, the great glory of the bride, the church. Uh, the church... Uh, is the holy place where God resides and lights it without sun or moon. So I suggest to you that what we're reading in these verses is the presentation Paul describes 
In Ephesians 5, he presented her to himself in great splendor. This meaning of the bride of Christ and the Lamb that the angel introduces to John in verse 9. Will we hear Christ say what William Montague said? I mean, you'll be there after all. You are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Will we hear Christ repeat Solomon's words from the Song of Solomon? You're, you're altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. What will the church, the bride of Christ, the wife of the Lamb, look like at that presentation? Well, we've seen what she will look like on that day, the wedding day. Uh, we'll see the church's origin, that she came from above. We'll see her beauty. She is arrayed with the very glory of God, with... Uh, uh, encrusted with jewels from her works of service to Christ in his body. Their union will be invulnerable, no interruption. We'll see the bride of, of many tribe and tongue and language and nation, the, the universality of it. We'll see the church built on Christ, the foundation. And then lastly, we'll see the glory. God will dwell with his bride through all eternity. Heavenly Father, these are words uh, beyond our understanding. I pray that your spirit would give us wisdom as we try to uh, process this amazing vision that John has seen. May we, as your bride, Christ Jesus, prepare ourselves. May we adorn ourselves with uh, gold and silver and precious stone. May we labor in the power of your Holy Spirit so that we won't lay uh, wood, hay, and stubble on the foundation May we lay the solid foundation of Christ our King and faith in Him. Jesus, do this work through us, we ask in Your name. Amen.